0: This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part one of a two-part case. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a mother's search for her long-lost son turns to a pursuit for justice when she uncovers a murder. The proof had been there all along, but no one wanted to see it. Welcome to episode 12 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Following a troubled and turbulent childhood, Jerry Puckett was sent to the Sark Center Reform School in Minnesota. She had been brought up by her father in Maryville, Missouri. After Jerry's mother left when she was just three years old, Jerry was ill-treated at the hands of two abusive stepmothers. Desperate to get out of the household where she was berated and beaten, Jerry rebelled. And as a consequence, often found herself in trouble. Jerry was only 10 years old when she first ran away, and then more issues cropped up in her teens that saw Jerry labelled a nuisance, a problem her family did not want or were not equipped to deal with. Her father worked long hours away from home in transport and could not handle her so he decided his daughter should no longer live with him and had Jerry placed in a foster home. When things did not improve with her foster carers, Jerry Puckett again ran away. For this reason, aged just 14, she was sent to Sark Centre Reform School. Life was far from easy. Any act of disobedience was met with strict punishment. Jerry had once been confined to a tiny room for 30 days when she attempted to run away with a group of girls from the reform school. While staying with a foster family in St. Cloud when she was 16, she had met a boy named Dennis McIntyre. The young couple fell madly in love, and Jerry would sneak out to see Dennis any chance she got. When the Foster family found out Jerry was sexually active, they sent her back to the reform school. However, the young couple were determined and still found a way to be together. Little did the Foster family know it was too late. Jerry was two months pregnant. She gave birth on December 6, 1961 at St. Michael's Hospital in Minnesota's Sark Centre. The baby boy was a sturdy eight and a half pounds in weight, 21 inches long and healthy. He was given the name Dennis after his 19-year-old father. Like his namesake, Dennis was baptised into the Catholic faith. The young parents were besotted with their new baby. Jerry spent hours attending to the child looking at him in awe counting his tiny fingers and toes, gently rubbing his wispy blonde hair and promising him a better life than the one she had. Jerry and Dennis Sr. tried to do what they could to be allowed to raise their son. Jerry worked as a childminder and her employer offered to let Jerry stay in their house with Dennis, but it was not enough. Jerry's father had practically disowned her by this point, but he gave consent for the state to take Dennis into care. On December 15th, the baby was placed with foster carers, the Martins. Jerry was promised that her son would have everything she could not provide him, at least financially. She was told Dennis would be safe. He would be loved. On April 18, 1962, Jerry was taken to the courthouse to sign away her parental rights. She later said, I was a ward of the state, and they said I had to give him up. They said they had the adoptive family all lined up. Brokenhearted, Jerry kissed her baby goodbye, but promised herself that when Dennis turned 18, they would find each other again. Soon after, Jerry got pregnant once more. She was still living at the reform school when she gave birth to her second child, a daughter she named Misty. After what she had been through giving up her first child, Jerry, now a little older, married her children's father, Dennis McIntyre, in June 1963. They went on to have three more children, Two girls, Rhonda and Dawn, and a boy who they again named Dennis. But Jerry and Dennis Senior never forgot their firstborn. Each year on December 6th, Jerry would sing happy birthday to Dennis, and long for the day he tried to find her. Unfortunately, the marriage did not last and Jerry and Dennis McIntyre divorced in 1970. Life was hard for Jerry, bringing up four children in a single-income household. She had to do what she could to make ends meet. Sometimes she turned to sex work to feed her family. Life went on. Jerry's children were in their teens, and finally, in December 1980, she decided she would try and find the son that was taken from her 19 years earlier. She wanted to give Dennis a year after he turned 18 to decide for himself whether or not to reach out before she tried to contact him. Time had not eased the pain. Each December she would fall deeper into a depression and she knew she would never be at peace. Until she learned where Dennis was. So she finally called the Scott County Welfare Department and inquired about her son. Six weeks later, a letter arrived from Ramsey County. Nervous and apprehensive that Dennis could have possibly rejected her, she anxiously opened the letter. The correspondence brought bad news an outcome that she had not contemplated in the almost two decades since she was forced to give up her son. It revealed the most heart-wrenching outcome. Dennis had died in childhood. He passed away on April 11th, 1965. The letter said the cause of his premature death was peritonitis an inflammation of the membrane lining the abdominal cavity and a ruptured bowel. Dennis was just three and a half years old. Jerry spent so many years grieving for the child she gave away and now she mourned for the young man she would never know. He never made it that far. Jerry took a while to come to terms with the news her son had died. She was left with questions and wanted to know more. What actually happened to Dennis? She decided to call the Ramsey County Welfare Office to try and get some more information. They told her that his adoptive surname was Jergens and that he had been buried in St Mary's Cemetery in White Bear during 1965. Two months later, Jerry went to the graveyard, accompanied by one of her daughters and a friend. They walked the rows of graves reading the headstones looking for Dennis's name, but could not find it. Not sure what to do next, they found Lake Mortuary, where the mortician Jim Honser was working. Jerry explained her situation and the predicament she found herself in not being able to find out where Dennis was laid to rest. Jim Honson knew immediately who they were asking about. He had been working there for over 20 years, and little Dennis Jurgens was a boy he could not forget. Jim thumbed through the files and pulled out one to give to Jerry. Attached to it was an old yellowing newspaper clipping dated April 13th, 1965. It was a short article titled, Tot's Death Due to Peritonitis. It read, An autopsy on the body of three-and-a-half-year-old Dennis Jerkins, son of Mr. and Mrs. Harold R. Jerkins, showed he died of peritonitis caused by a ruptured bowel, Dr. Thomas W. Votel, Ramsey County Coroner, said today. The body also bore multiple injuries and bruises, Dr. Votel said. White Bear Police and the Coroner's Office are investigating the death. In shock, the trio left the office and went back out to look for the grave. They saw a groundskeeper and went over to ask if he knew where Dennis was buried. The man guided them to the spot and said that Dennis was his nephew. He spoke about how his sister Lois and her husband Harold made sure Dennis never wanted for anything. The groundskeeper said that the couple were well off and Dennis's adoptive father worked in Musker Electric Store. And Jerry told him who she was and asked about the bruises the article had mentioned, the man walked away leaving them in front of a small headstone. It read, Our Little Angel. The welfare officials could not give Jerry any further information about what had happened to Dennis or where his adoptive parents lived. Undeterred, she searched through the phone books and called the directory. The Jergens were unlisted. She knew that Dennis's adoptive father Harold had worked at Musker Electric, so she contacted them. Luckily, this lead was fruitful. They gave her the Jergens' home number. Jerry put the phone down and then rang the number she was given. Lois Jergens answered. Lois explained that she thought Jerry had been informed about Dennis's death A long time ago. Jerry later said. I asked her what kind of little boy he was and she said he had been a good, happy little boy. She didn't say much else except that when he was found he had black blotches all over his body and they didn't know where the wounds had come from. I told her I dearly wanted a picture of him she promised to send me one along with a baptismal sweater I gave her my name phone number and address and I waited about six weeks and didn't get anything when Jerry called again there was no dial time the number had been changed and the Jergens new number was unlisted feeling defeated Jerry would remark I just kind of dropped it Everybody said I had given up my legal rights. Scott County records describe Dennis's early life in his foster home with the Martins. It was said he was a happy baby, who did not have any shyness about him. Dennis had been baptised into the Catholic Church. Not many Catholic babies were in the state's care at the time, as most were under private adoption agencies. This made it difficult to find him a home, as he would have to be placed with a Catholic family. Finally, in late 1962, a potential family was found, Harold and Lois Jergens. That said, the state social worker was not entirely convinced that the home would be suitable. A report read, Although we have some reservations as to the suitability of this home for Dennis, we are referring it to you for your consideration as it is the only Catholic home available at this time. If you do not wish to proceed in this matter, feel assured that we will continue to search for new homes for this little boy. A meeting was called to decide if Dennis should be placed with the Jurgens the Jergens had two strict criteria for the child they wanted to adopt. The child must be an infant, and they must be Catholic. Dennis was almost a year old. It was revealed that Jerry, his biological mother, had changed her mind about joining the Catholic Church, so Dennis would have been raised as a Protestant. The welfare officials decided that was not true and they wanted to go ahead and see if Harold and Lois Jergens would take Dennis. Lois Jergens came from a large family. She was one of 16 children. She had grown up in poverty but married middle-class Howard Jurgens. Ashamed of her social status, she made every effort to convey herself as the perfect housewife. She had a pathological need to control every aspect of her life, which some believe stemmed from the fact that she could not control her own behaviour. In the 1950s, Lois Jergen struggled with her mental health, and like many people were at the time, she was institutionalised. Whilst in a psychiatric hospital, she was administered electroconvulsive therapy, Lois and Harold had been unable to conceive a child, a fact that made her fall into a deep depression. That control was again taken away from her, and the couple were unable to adopt children through the usual channels. Lois and Harold were blocked from adopting children because of Lois's history of mental illness, but somehow they managed to get around this by going through the private adoption route. The pair adopted a baby boy. They named him Robert. When the state authorities found out that the Jurgenses had skirted around the official adoption route, going through unofficial channels, they considered the couple's position as parents due to Lois Jurgens' history. But they saw how well Robert was doing, and they allowed the pair to adopt a boy. When Lois and Harold were offered to adopt Dennis, they were excited at the prospect, a sibling for Robert and another child to add to the young family. However, this was not a straightforward matter for Lois Jergens. She expressed her disappointment at Dennis's age, his curious personality, and that he was a well-built little boy. She wanted a quiet child who behaved like their other adopted son, Robert. Lois's wish list for a child became even more ridiculous when she demanded that the child they were going to adopt look like their son, Robert. Little Dennis did not fit into the Jurgens' strict criteria. He was not a carbon copy of the child they had already adopted. Sadly, Lois Jergen's unreasonable behaviour was not enough to send the social workers running for the hills and taking the offer to adopt Dennis with them. Lois asked officials if they rejected Dennis, would they get another chance to adopt. She was told that it was unlikely, as there were very few Catholic babies in the system. In the book a death at White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. The welfare worker describes feeling uneasy at having to almost convince the Jurgens to adopt Dennis. Lois and Harold decided they would visit him. The happy little boy held up his arms to the strangers. Lois just looked straight at him. She would later complain about the adorable little boy, that he was, quote, sloppy fat, and that his chubby baby stomach was awful looking. Lois Jergens voiced her concerns about how Dennis would relate to their older son, Robert. However, her husband, Harold, was more than happy to proceed with the adoption. The county welfare worker did not feel comfortable placing Dennis with a woman who seemed to blatantly dislike him but they went ahead anyway. Dennis was placed with the Jurgens on December 7th, 1962. He was one year and one day old. Lois Jurgens' disdainful behaviour towards the little boy had not softened after the first meeting. She fixated on the boy, blaming him for not fitting into their perfectly controlled life. And she thought of him as an awful child. For some reason, little Dennis, at just a year old, was to blame for anything and everything. Despite his age, if Dennis did not fall in line with every strict request Lois Jergens had, he would suffer the consequences. In contrast to his new brother, Robert was a pale child who was always ill. He was sickly. Quiet and withdrawn. Dennis was a robust little boy who was active, alert and inquisitive. This, Lois said, was something she could train out of him. Eight months later, Dennis, aged just one and a half, was hospitalised with severe burns on his lower abdomen, genitals and buttocks. Was it just an awful accident? had the Jurgens just turned around for a second and the toddler got himself in mischief and hurt himself. Lois and Harold told the doctor what happened and it sounded feasible. They explained that the accident had occurred when Dennis turned on the hot water while he was having a bath. The couple were still within the one-year probationary period before the adoption was finalised. Still, the welfare officials seemed to accept their version of events. Dennis's doctor noted the toddler would probably need skin grafts. Luckily he recovered enough not to need them. Dennis's physical therapist at Mounds Park Hospital said that she had never seen such a quote, grotesque and unusual injury. Most of the burn was located on Dennis's penis and scrotum. Furthermore, he weighed three pounds less than when he was taken in by the Jurgens eight months earlier. In 1963, Lois Jurgens went camping with family members. A friend of Lois's niece heard Lois hitting and screaming at Dennis because he was not ready to use the potty. Some family members suggested that Lois pull out of the adoption and give Dennis back. Lois Juergens would hear none of it. The family of four often spent Sundays with Lois Juergens' side of the family. Dennis's cousins remembered him eagerly taking part in any fun and games. They playfully called him Dennis the Menace. The extent of Lois Juergen's control and influence was evident. Her husband and family members turned a blind eye when they witnessed her abusing her young son. Family members recalled the Jergens boys being quiet, especially Robert. It was always Dennis that seemed to get into trouble for the smallest things. When Dennis was learning to walk, Lois Juergens would yank him up and hit him on the arm hard. That Thanksgiving, when Dennis did not want to eat his dinner, Lois force-fed him until he vomited, and then she fed him the vomit. At Lois Juergens' sister's funeral in January 1965, Dennis was wearing sunglasses inside throughout the entire service. All the abuse was kept hidden from the state and county welfare officials, who just saw a religious family who earned a decent wage, lived in an expensive house, drove a nice car and appeared to be respectable and desperate to prove they could take care of their children. Just over three months after the funeral, on April 11, 1965, Officer Robert VanderWise responded to a call about a DOA involving a small child. Officer VanderWise drove to 2148 South Gardenette Drive. He knew the house. The second in command at White Bear Police was Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas. This was the home of his sister Lois Juergens. At around 9.15am that morning, Harold Jergens had called Dr. Roy Peterson and said he believed his son was dying. The doctor pronounced Dennis Jergens dead at 9.35am and called the police and the coroner's office. Officer van der Weys approached the bedroom where the little boy's body lay in his crib, a blanket covering most of his body. Lois and Harold Jergens were not crying or distressed as the officer had expected them to be after their child had suddenly died. The Jergens told the police that Dennis had slipped the day before and had a fever from a cold. Harold said he had taken Dennis to the bathroom in the night and the little boy was in good form, chatting about his father's broken watch. The next morning when they went to check on Dennis, he was gurgling and gasping for air. Whenever they repeated the story in future it was consistent, however they would later claim that Dennis had fallen down the basement stairs a week earlier. The coroner's investigator, Sam Patera, arrived with the ambulance. Along with Officer van der Weijs, they went into the bedroom to view Dennis's body. He was lying on his back, his arms along his sides reaching upwards and stiff to the touch. His little face was covered in bruises. They were at different stages of healing. On his forehead there was a large abrasion, and his nose was red and peeling. The coroner's investigator was surprised at the level of rigor mortis present. They could not push the boy's arms down to move him to the ambulance, so he was lifted and cradled as they walked out of the house. Lois and Harold Jurgens did not want to announce Dennis's death just yet. Still neighbours had seen the emergency response vehicles outside their house that morning. Word began to spread, as did rumours about what had happened in the house. Some people spoke of seeing Lois Jergens hit Dennis so hard she burst his nose. Others whispered that the child had lost so much weight in the past two summers since he had been living there. Even though there was talk flowing freely around town, not one person is recorded as reporting what they had seen or heard to the police. Officer Van der Vanderwise went to speak with Lieutenant Zerwas to inform him of his nephew's death. He told Zerwas that Dennis had so many bruises covering him that you could not fit a nickel in between them was told the investigators that his sister would never hurt the child and he would do anything to protect her. Dennis's body was brought to the coroner's office in St. Paul. Coroner's investigator Patera saw a number of injuries on Dennis's body once the boy was undressed. Bruises covered almost every inch of his arms, legs, torso, back and buttocks. There was also a deep laceration on the tip of the three-year-old's penis. Dr. Thomas Votel was the coroner. His colleague, Dr. Robert Woodburn, performed the autopsy. Dr. Woodburn said there were between 50 to 100 bruises on Dennis's body. There was a linear bruise on Dennis's upper abdomen. Dr. Woodburn found a quarter of an inch perforation of the small bowel that caused gastrointestinal material to seep into the peritoneal cavity, which caused peritonitis, leading to Dennis's death. It was likely that Dennis died after spending his last days in agonising pain. The perforation or tear of the small bowel had no internal cause. Dr. Votel said that he believed Dennis was an abused child and marked his cause of death as deferred, while he awaited more information about the investigation. Harold Jergens was interviewed at White Bear Police Department at 6.30pm that evening. Officers told him what the coroner had seen on Dennis's body and asked him why the boy was so bruised. Harold explained it away, though his explanation was flimsy. He said that Dennis fell often and bruised easily. Supposedly, the little boy did not feel pain and did not tell them if he had been injured. His father said that Dennis had always had bowel problems and did not seem to know how to go to the toilet when he needed to. Harold Jergens excused the injury to his son's penis as being caused by the scolding incident the previous summer. Harold also said that Dennis may have seemed emaciated because he did not know how to chew his food properly and would swallow chunks. Nonetheless, the couple had not sought professional help with this or his supposed toileting issues. Harold claimed that he had not been home that weekend until Saturday night, as he was working away in Wisconsin. He denied that Dennis had ever been hit or physically harmed. Harold told the officers that Dennis had fallen down the basement stairs a day earlier but he was not home at the time to witness it. Officers van der Weiss and Carol Chuck went back to the Jergens' house and asked to see the basement. The steep stairwell led to a bathroom. At this point, Harold Jergens said that Dennis had slipped coming out of the bathroom. He did not mention the stairs again. Some of those who knew Lois and Harold Juergens were willing to break ranks and speak with the officers. Lloyd Zerwas and his wife Donna had seen Lois beat and berate the boy before. They had fostered a number of children and believed Lois should never have been given any children. Sharon Kopp, Lois Juergens' sister, also came forward. She said that she had been on the phone with Lois and could hear her beating the boy in the background as he screamed. When they returned a few days later, Sharon refused to sign a statement in case she was called to testify at a trial. The White Bear Lake mortician Jim Honser was asked to take care of the funeral. Jim Honsa had never seen a child so badly beaten. The image remained engraved in his mind. He wondered how a fall down the stairs could cause so many bruises without breaking any bones. Honsa spent the next two days trying to cover the bruises for the open casket visitation. One of the family members brought in a crown of white roses to place on Dennis's head. On Wednesday, April 14th, 1965, the funeral was held. Lois and Harold had barely been involved in the planning of Dennis's goodbye and did not speak with the mortician at the funeral home when they came to view the body. Even at the funeral there was an undercurrent of suspicion. Eyes were firmly fixed on Lois. Some people were certain that she had killed Dennis. Stories were whispered in low voices of how she would force Dennis to read the rosary with a clothespin on the tip of his penis and if he missed a prayer she would beat him. Dennis was blonde with pale skin. The bruises, black, purple and yellow, showed through the makeup applied to hide them. When someone at the funeral asked Lois Jergens why Dennis was so bruised, She said the police had beaten him after they took Dennis away. Five days after the funeral, Robert was removed from the Jurgens home. The couple had been expecting it and were emotionless as they passed the five-year-old and a bag of his belongings to officers. Robert was admitted to St. Paul's Anchor Hospital. When social workers came to assess him, the child only seemed interested in speaking about religion, though he did tell them that Dennis died of hunger. When Robert was offered some candy, he said, No, my mother wouldn't like that. The investigation was met with hostility from most of Lois Jergens' family members. No one was willing to speak. The Juergens' attorney had been contacted and asked to bring Harold and Lois Juergens in for further questioning, but they never came. Officer Carol Chuck's report read, Mr. and Mrs. Juergens said that Dennis was up and around shortly before the time he died, that the boy said he was before meal prayers talked to his father about a broken watch band, went to the bathroom and wiped himself after a bowel movement. Although we do not have a professional opinion at the present time covering the possibility of this sort of activity by a person affected with peritonitis so short a time before death. It has been discussed that activity of this sort mentioned by the Jurgenses would not be very likely to have occurred. Another clear report of the coroner's deputy investigator Sam Patera states that Dennis fell on the basement steps. He says he got this information from Mrs. Jergens. Officer Van der Weys was told by Mrs. Jergens that Dennis fell on the basement floor. When Officer Van der Weys and I were at the Jergens residence on April 11th, 1965, Harold Jergens pointed out a spot on the basement floor where Dennis was supposed to have slipped and fallen, coming out of the basement toilet room. This area is some distance from the basement steps. The report went on to say there were a number of areas that Juergens' statements would require further exploration. Harold Jergens had said the sore on Dennis's penis had come from the scolding incident the summer before. Dr. Roy Peterson said that he had treated this injury in August of the previous year and it should have healed. None of Dennis's doctors supported the Jergens' insistence that Dennis was impervious to pain. By all accounts, Dennis seemed like an average little boy and would cry when injured or reprimanded. None of those interviewed supported the claim that Dennis was clumsy and would fall often. The true nature of the injuries to Dennis's penis was revealed through a statement given by Sharon Copp. She had said that Lois Juergens had openly spoken about placing a clamped clothes peg on Dennis's genitals while he knelt on the handle of a broom to recite the rosary. Dr. Woodburn agreed that the marks could have been caused by, quote, vocal pressure such as would be caused by a spring-loaded clothes pin. It emerged that the Jurgens' attorney had been going to the family members' homes and advising them on what to say if they were asked to give a statement. Each of those who had once been willing to talk now gave the same revised response when questioned. Lois Jergens' brother was the second in command at the local police force. The investigation was over just three weeks after it began but the officers made sure to hand a copy of their files to the Ramsey court attorney. Battered child syndrome was just being introduced in courtrooms, but it was not a recognised concept. Without a witness to testify about Dennis's death, the medical evidence of abuse was not enough to try the case. If the prosecutors were not pursuing it as a homicide investigation... The county coroner would not be listing it as such. The matter of Dennis's death remained deferred. One week after Dennis' death, Lois Jergens approached her priest. She asked him to write a letter of recommendation. Harold and Lois Jergens wanted to adopt again. Ramsey County welfare officials had received word about Dennis's death and the circumstances surrounding it. Norma Potter wrote that after getting the report on the incident and the alleged neglect of Robert Jurgens, the county would not be considering the Jurgens as potential parents for any other children. A petition had been filed with the Ramsey Juvenile Court about the alleged abuse of Robert who had since been placed into the care of the state. A hearing at the Ramsey County Courthouse was held before Judge Archie Gingold, the first of many hearings over the following years in relation to the eldest Jurgens boy. The Jurgens' attorney denied all of the allegations against his clients, so it was pointed out were opposed to Robert being taken from their care in the first place. They asked that Robert be placed with members of Lois Jergen's family or Harold Juergens' parents. Some of the Juergens' neighbours on Gardenette Drive were subpoenaed to testify at the custody hearings. The attorney, Ed Donoghue, had carefully picked neighbours who had not witnessed any of the abuse. Lois Jergens did not even flinch behind her veiled hat when the photographs from Dennis's autopsy were placed in front of her. Attorney Donoghue tried to have Officer Vanderwise removed from the public gallery, fearful that anything said during the hearing would be used in any pending homicide case against his clients. The judge refused. Despite the hearing being in respect of the custody of Robert Jerkins, there was a lot of testimony about Dennis. Lloyd Zerwas, uh, Lois's brother, testified that he had seen Dennis being force-fed on Thanksgiving 1963. Lois force-fed the child horseradish as punishment for not eating his food. Dennis vomited as a result and then she forced him to eat the vomit. Lloyd's wife, Donna Zerwas, further stated that Dennis had been choking on the food being forced into his mouth. Donna also gave the court further information about the mistreatment of Dennis. She testified that Lois Juergens had told her when Dennis was unable to make a bowel movement, she would put her finger in his rectum and then feed him his stool. Donna was claimed that she had confided in her priest Father Riser about the abuse she had witnessed. On the stand, the priest denied hearing any such thing. Dr. Robert Woodburn then testified about Dennis's autopsy. He said that peritonitis was excruciatingly painful the injury that killed Dennis could have only have come from external trauma applied to the bowel. Only 5-10% of the injuries he saw on Dennis's body could be explained by a fall. On the second day of the hearing, the defence called 39-year-old Lois Jergens to the stand. On examination by her own attorney, She spoke about her upbringing, Robert's adoption and how she apparently disciplined the children. She testified that she made them stand in the corner or she would send them to their room. Under cross-examination, attorney Peritsky asked Lois Jergens if her feelings for Robert were the same as her feelings for Dennis. The Jurgens' attorney quickly instructed his clients to refuse to answer the question on the grounds that it may be used to incriminate her. A Fifth Amendment privilege was unheard of in a custody hearing, but the attorney had already warned the Jurgenses that they could be charged with homicide if the state decided to do so. The Ramsey County Welfare Department was given custody of Robert Jurgens. He was allowed to live with Harold Jergens' parents. Those who testified reported that they had received threats for speaking out against the Jergens. Lois Jergens called the witnesses late at night for weeks. She informed them she would burn down their houses and kill their children who were sleeping inside. The custody hearings continued intermittently for four years. Each time Robert would continue to remain in the custody of the state because the Jurgenses refused to be evaluated by a psychiatrist that Judge Grinhold recommended. Harold's parents Bob and Irene Jurgens had Robert living at their home in St Paul from the summer of 1965. Lois Jurgens and her mother-in-law's relationship was not a close one. Still, along with her husband, they were allowed to see Robert as frequently as they wished, which breached the visitation rules that had been imposed. Lois Jurgens had requested Robert to be removed from her in-laws to be placed with her niece, Bonnie Welch, in White Bear Lake, but the welfare department wanted to keep Robert with his grandparents. A few months later in November... Bob and Irene's house in St. Paul burned down. Harold's mother Irene died in the fire. It was highly coincidental that Robert Jergens had not been in the house at the time. He was then moved and at Lois Jergens' request, he was placed in the care of Bonnie Welch. After a year and a half, Robert then moved into June Bowl’s house in Stillwater. June was married to Lois Jurgens’ cousin and had many children off her own. She happily agreed to look after Robert. The Jurgens believed he would be returned to their care in the coming months. Robert Jurgens had changed in the time he was away. He had been moved around with different children and different guardians. Robert went from a shy and frightened child to just a regular nine-year-old boy. The Jurgens had moved from White Bear Lake to Stillwater a few months after Robert was placed with June Bults. Their new house was conveniently on the same street. In the book A Death at White Bear Lake, June Bowles recalled that Lois Jergens began interfering shortly after. She would watch Robert, almost spying from her house. Every time the urge took her, she would call June with trivial complaints. When Robert was allowed to return to the Jergens care in September 1969... Two years after he moved in with the Bowles, Lois Jurgens forbade him to have any contact with June or the foster siblings he had lived with for the previous two years. The Jurgenses had finally relented and undergone psychological evaluations that the judge had ordered. They were awarded custody of Robert once again. The psychological report on Lois Jergens' assessment was written by doctors who concluded that she was suffering from disorders like anxiety, depression, schizoid personality and neurotic tendencies. She had an abusive childhood and expected obedience and conformance from everyone. Lois also had difficulty accepting anything she perceived to be an imperfection in her family members. It did not matter if they were a child or an adult. She had belittled her husband for years about his infertility. The authorities had not felt like Lois would be able to withstand the stresses of raising a child, but once Robert got older they felt he would not be in any danger in the Jurgens' home. Marion Diner Nord, a social worker for Ramsey County, Nater spoke of how she opposed the Juergens' attempts to regain custody of Robert, but she had been discouraged from looking into the circumstances of Dennis' death. She was told the information was missing. No charges were ever filed, and the case was closed. In 1971, the Jurgenses tried again to adopt children. Lois and Harold applied through an agency they had not used for the adoption of Robert or Dennis. This time they went to the Lutheran Social Services. Through the grapevine, the couple heard about four siblings from Kentucky who had been placed into care after their mother relinquished them to the state. Nine-year-old Renee, eight-year-old Grant, six-year-old Michael and four-year-old Ricky were initially placed with foster parents in Caldwell County. Their foster mother Sherry Riley reported that they were very well-behaved children who willingly helped around the house without being asked. They were close and the social workers wanted to find a placement where the siblings would be kept together. Sherry Riley wanted to keep them, but she was single and the system would not let her have four children. When the officials in Kentucky came across the Jurgens application, it seemed perfect, perhaps too good to be true. Their application stated that they had adopted one child, Robert, in 1960. There was no mention of Dennis at any stage. The pair did not disclose any information about his death or that he even lived with them. Harold Jergens had a good job. They had a small mortgage, a big house and no apparent problems that would prevent them from being the perfect parents. When Dennis's death was uncovered, Lois and Harold managed to convince the officials that they had only left it out as they felt they would be unfairly judged for something they were never convicted of. A sibling group of four, none of which were babies, would be awfully hard to place, so they were settled into the Jurgens' care in Stillwater. Life seemed perfect. Along with Robert, the four children from Kentucky formed a band they called the Jerk Five. They had more than they ever had before. Once the probationary period ended, the children were officially adopted and no longer had to receive visits from social workers. Soon after, people began to notice something was not quite right with the Jerkins' children. Once Lois Jergens felt comfortable enough to drop the facade of a perfect mother, her abusive behavior escalated. The siblings were constantly on edge. The noise of Lois Jergens' bedroom door opening or the sight of her car on the drive as they got off the school bus would make their stomachs sink. Lois was incredibly violent, sadistic and unflinching with the children. It was said that she once held Grant by the ears and slammed his head into a nail that was sticking out of the wall. She would barge into their rooms in the middle of the night to make sure that they were up to her standard of cleanliness. If she found that they had any dust or the slightest bit of disorganisation, she would beat them. Harold Jurgens was not abusive, In fact, three out of the five children adopted by the couple stated that he was kind. But nevertheless, he did not intervene when he witnessed the abuses committed by his wife. When Lois Jergens instructed Harold to discipline the children, he would tell them to cry loudly as he slapped his own leg to convince Lois he was following her orders. In interviews years later they disclosed the extent of the abuse. Lois would beat and humiliate the children for three years before they were able to get help. Following one of Lois Jergen's stage suicide attempts, the house would be peaceful while she was hospitalised. Renee, the oldest sibling and the only girl, began confiding in Bonnie Welch about the abuse. Bonnie was Lois Jergens' niece. She had custody of Robert for a time and was familiar with her aunt's behaviour. Eloise Zerwas, uh, Bonnie's mother, asked June Bowles, who had also looked after Robert, if she would allow the children to come to her house if they ever tried to escape. June agreed. In 1975, Robert Jergens, now older, ran away from home and was placed into foster care. Renee and Grant, the eldest of the siblings adopted from Kentucky three years earlier, decided to run away too. The younger children were too frightened to follow them and Lois Juergens beat Michael and Ricky mercilessly for not telling her where their brother and sister had gone. They ran to June Bowl's house, who brought them to the police station to report the abuse. The children spoke about the years of pain they had endured, and Renee even had a clump of hair that she had kept that Lois Jergens had ripped from her head. Again, Lois denied the child abuse charges, and called the children ungrateful and lazy. Once the siblings contacted their first foster mother, Sherry, she came straight to Minnesota. Sherry had got married since the children had left. She told the social workers she was now in a position to take them and would be happy to have the siblings back. After a hearing in September 1975, the children were split up. Grant was placed with June Bowles, Renee was placed with Bonnie Welch And Michael and Ricky moved to Kentucky to live with Sherry. Despite the long record of probable abuse in the Jurgenses file, they had still been allowed to adopt the children years earlier. As one social worker Jacqueline Oliver later said, Kentucky was more interested in getting the four children off the dole than they were in finding a safe home for the children. Lois and Harold Jurgens had their parental rights stripped the following year. This is the end of episode 12. To hear the concluding installment of A Mother's Love, please listen next week. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane editing by Brad maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime podcast network, please visit lawandcrime.com/podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.